City Light Church, he is risen. He has risen indeed. Welcome, welcome. My name is Gavin. I'm so glad you are here because today we celebrate the greatest moment in all of history, the greatest truth ever told, the greatest miracle of all times, that the, the greatest man to ever live, the man Jesus Christ, actually, physically, bodily, miraculously rose again from the grave. This is true in AD 33. Uh, 1,984 years ago, a murdered Jewish carpenter from Galilee, after predicting his own resurrection, canceled his own funeral, kicked the end out of a borrowed tomb, and resurrected from the grave, defeating sin and death and the devil. This is amazing, amen? amen? Absolutely amazing. Now listen to this. Think about this. A lot of historical events have changed the course of human history, right? From the development of ancient civilizations to uh, modern farming techniques, the reign of world leaders, the two world wars, the, mo- the advent of the modern era. From the inventions of the printing press and the light bulb, modern medicine, the internet, and the smartphone, many events and advancements and people have shaped the contours of human history. But no event, no gadget, no leader has made its mark on human history like the man, Jesus Christ. Now think about this. Really think about this. This is fascinating. Put this in perspective. This man, Jesus, was a simple, rural, blue-collar, first-century peasant Galilean. He was born to unwedged, unwed teenage parents in an, and raised in an obscure small town in Roman-ruled Palestine. Jesus was never formally educated. He never married. He never had kids. He never wrote a book. He never ran a business. He never spoke at a conference. He was never a keynote speaker. He never had a social media account, no Twitter, no Facebook. He didn't invent anything. He didn't discover anything. He didn't explore anything. Jesus didn't lead a city or a nation or an army. He didn't sit on any boards. Never fought in a war. He never won a major award. But this man, Jesus, of history sparked a movement in 33 AD that has absolutely changed the world. Started with a a group of cowardly, fearful men and some women, and over a short amount of time grew to a few hundred people, a few thousand people, a few million people. Within a matter of a few years, this movement spread throughout the entire Roman Empire and the entire known world at the time. And today, 2017, this little movement started by this guy in the middle of nowhere in 33 AD. It hasn't hasn't died out. It hasn't diminished. Oh, no, 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 no. This movement continues to press forward and go on. It continues to spread even in an advanced, enlightened, modern era This man, Jesus Christ, is now worshipped by some 2.2 billion people. Rich people, poor people, educated people, simple people, men, women, rural, urban, tribal people, suburban people with black skin, brown skin, white skin, kind of pinkish, pale skin, and every other hue of skin on the planet. He is worshipped. This morning, think about it, thousands of different languages and dialects. Every continent of this planet, there are people who are worshiping this man, Jesus Christ, in every style of music across countless cultures. This name is being lifted up. He's being worshiped in open fields, under trees, in grand, majestic cathedrals, in secret underground dwellings, in, 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 in white, steepled country churches, even former bakery buildings. The name of Jesus today is being lifted up. Jesus Christ doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not. He is the most influential person in all of human history. Our modern dating system is, is centered and pivots around him. Thousands of cities and schools and hospitals and institutions bear his name. 
And listen, the people of the world either love him or hate him, but they have to contend with the person Jesus Christ because he is the most influential person in the world. No one has shaped the world like the man Jesus Christ. Now, how did all this start? Well, good question. I'm glad you asked because I brought a Bible. And so if you brought yours, please do open it to John chapter 20. We're going to take a look at the first resurrection appearance of Jesus. And uh, it was read for us. Greg, thank you for reading it. We're in chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. We see that Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb, finds it empty, goes back, gets the disciples, comes back. The Lord then appears to Mary. And as we take a look at one of the four resurrection accounts that we find in the New Testament, I want to zoom in and I want to bring to surface three truths about the resurrection that we find in the Gospel of John. We're going to start very broad, and we're going to make our way to a more specific and personal application as we go. So here's the first application. Here's the first truth about the resurrection that I want us to take note of uh, this morning. You can write this down, make note of it, use it to to follow along with what I'm saying. The, The first truth is this. Jesus is alive, and this is history. Jesus is alive, and this is a matter of history. Look with me again at the first 10 verses. This is John talking about the resurrection. He says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. Now, do you guys know who the one whom Jesus loved is? It's John. Um, Do you know the only gospel in the New Testament that refers to John as the disciple whom Jesus loved? John. Do you know who wrote the gospel of John? John, okay? So if you ever feel like you are Jesus' favorite, it's biblical. Somehow in his eternity, he can have a lot of favorites. The one whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Now, which, which disciple outran the other one? John. Who recorded that in the Bible? (laughs) John. Hey, if you get to write a book of the Bible, let the record stand, right? You think this guy's a little competitive? It's all in good fun. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm better at golf than Chris. And running. And swimming. I jump higher. And I'm better at spelling. But we continue. (laughs) Verse 5. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, just going to drop it in one more time. Chris did beat me at a board game once. It's called Settlers of Catan. Super weird. I don't know. So I'm going to give him that one. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Okay, let me start with this. Many, many will say the resurrection uh, is sort of a religious fable, okay? Um, it's a good thing, but it's, it's sort of a myth. It's sort of a folklore, a fairy tale, or a legend, as it were. Um, you know, with positive reinforcing sentiment that can add benefit and value to your life, right? So this is sort of religious, 
you know, well-meaning platitude to encourage people to have hope in, in hopeless times. So what I want to show you is that the Gospels present the resurrection of Jesus Christ in no uncertain terms as nothing less than a historical event, okay? And so um, you can say, you know, I don't believe in the resurrection. That's an option. We can go there and we can argue that. But, but what we need to agree upon, at least, is that the Gospels present the resurrection as history, okay? The Bible doesn't really give us a valid option to just appreciate the resurrection story and not really wrestle with its veracity. Either he did rise or he didn't rise. In fact, the Bible itself says of Christians that we are to be pitied above all men if the resurrection is not true, okay? So we need to come to the Bible on its own terms and wrestle with the resurrection of, on its own terms, which is, listen, this guy either actually rose from the grave as a matter of history, or he didn't. But this is not just religious sentiment, okay? So as we look at John's gospel, remember, John is a real man from real history who is documenting, he would say, a real event as he really saw it and experienced it with his own eyes, Take note, he, he goes to great length to include great detail. What time of day Mary goes to the tomb? Who won the foot race? What they saw. He is recording this as a matter of history. Furthermore, we have other eyewitnesses that record their own accounting of it, like Matthew, whom himself interacted with and saw the resurrected Jesus. We've got Luke and we've got Mark, who were, were firsthand witnesses and, and secondhand interviewers of, of Peter and the other disciples, all giving an accounting of the historic, historically verified resurrection of the historic man, Jesus Christ. Now, what's fascinating about these four different Gospels is they all tell and affirm the same truth. But they do it from different angles, right? It affirms they're telling one true unified story that they witnessed and encountered, but each one highlights a different aspect, tells the story in a slightly different way, just adding different perspectives, but telling the same story from their unique authorship and perspective. So you might say, okay, Gaff, that's great. This is wonderful. You say it's a matter of history, but isn't it possible that the gospel writers and the first century church, they sort of got together and conspired. Hey, isn't this embarrassing? You know, we gave three years of our life to you know, following this guy, said he was the Messiah, said he's going to usher in the kingdom of God, and now he's gone. How do we save face? Well, let's pretend like he rose again, and this is an eternal spiritual kingdom, right? Okay, that's, that's, a, that's an argument. Once again, we can have that. But let me encourage you with what I think are three evidences for the historic resurrection that jump primarily right out of our text. The first one is this. Who is the first person that actually sees the resurrected Jesus? Who was in the story? Mary. Mary Magdalene, a woman, right? Remember, this is first century. The very first person who witnesses the resurrected Jesus is Mary. Now listen to this. Celsus was a second century Greek philosopher. His writing contribution was to disprove the claims of this new Christian cult, this new wingnut Christian movement that he's seeing take root in his families and others. And, and so he invests the majority of his you know, author contributions to disproving the claims of Christianity. And he's the Richard Dawkins of his day, okay? So in one of his most prominent arguments against the resurrection, here's what he writes. Quote, how can anyone expect rational men to listen to the testimony of a hysterical female? Amen. No, not amen, okay? <laughs> not amen, not amen, right? I, I say that to point, to be funny, not funny, right? But, 
But yeah, 21st century, we gasp, right? What a, what a misogynistic statement. How on earth could he say that? Well, you need to understand the context of the day. In the day, this is a valid argument. He lived in a misogynistic era when, when, when women's view and status and culture was extraordinarily low. So low, their testimony was not seen as valid or you know, admissible in the court of law. It was not a, it was not a, a verifiable, reliable, credible witness. So keep in mind, all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all affirm it was women who first saw the resurrected Jesus and gave testimony to his resurrection. And so really, Celsus's argument for his day was a valid argument. People would have gone, ah, yeah, you, you kind of got me there, right? Um, really, Jesus's appearance to the women was the Achilles heel of the Christian movement in the first century. But listen, it is not the Achilles heel of the resurrection in its veracity today, is it? Why? Historians will say and agree, if you were inventing stories of the resurrection, you would never put women in there as the first witnesses. The only plausible historical explanation for the women being the first witnesses in the Gospels is that they were. Jesus didn't ask our permission. Who's a credible witness? If they're fabricating the story, the last thing they're going to do is put women forth as the first example. There's no other reason to write it that way unless Jesus first appeared to the women. Second argument, Jesus, after he appears to Mary, we'll read in the next verses, he appears to the disciples. Now remember, the disciples up until this point, since Jesus' bogus trial and execution, they've been in hiding. These guys are up basically in an attic. They are fearful that the same fate that met their Lord, their rabbi, is awaiting them. And so they are, they are in hiding. They're retreating. We see that the resurrected Jesus appears to them, and something remarkable changes. These men go from being you know, hiding, sort of cowards in the background, to these bold, courageous men. They become the apostles. They go out. They write the Gospels. They declare the message of the resurrection to a very hostile culture. They face persecution and beating and mocking, and all but one of them faces a martyr's death. They were murdered because of this claim. Now, you might say, why? You know, if they made this thing up, would they really face death with with such conviction? Well, I don't think so. I love a good practical joke as much as the next guy. I especially love pulling practical jokes on Wayne State grads. They will believe anything. It's just, it's too easy. You can fabricate all kinds of stuff. But listen, if I'm going to be crucified upside down like Peter, if I'm going to be stabbed through with spears like Thomas, if I'm going to be clubbed to death like James, if the resurrection didn't happen, what am I going to say? You know, uncle, quit stabbing me in the face. With, you know, I didn't, you know, stop. But they didn't. They faced their own martyrdom with faith and full assurance that they too would be rised up on that last day. Why? They saw the resurrected Jesus. That will change you. Furthermore, in the letter of 1 Corinthians, which was a public and highly circulated document written less than 20 years after Jesus died and rose, the author wrote that Jesus appeared to hundreds and hundreds of people. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, hey, he's appeared to more than 500 people at the same time. Many of them are still alive. In other words, go ask them. So you ask the question, you know, why did this Christian movement spark in such a way that it did in the first century, like I shared in sort of the introduction to my sermon? It's because Jesus appeared physically, bodily, in a verified way to hundreds of documented people, and it changed them. It absolutely changed them. 
These people saw the resurrected Jesus and it verified his resurrection. It validated his claims of being God, Savior, Lord, King, and Christ. And it assured them of their own resurrection on that last day. Death had no power over them. And so the movement sparked, and that's why it continues to today. Jesus is alive. And so this first point, I really want us to, to understand Easter on its own terms, okay? Um, by way of application, we can't come to Easter as just another reason to put on your men's warehouse shirt, Chris, it does look fresh, and get dressed and come, and we've got flowers, and it's nostalgic, and the kids got the dresses on, and, and we're going to go and eat unreasonable amounts of ham, although that is biblical. There's a verse in there in Acts. It's my favorite verse. We are, that's, a, that's of the Lord. Um, but today, we are, we are marking a real historic event, Okay. And so we need, to, we need to contend with this. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is nothing short of stating an absolute historical fact. The man Jesus Christ lived, died, and claims to have risen from the grave. And so Jesus is alive, and this is historical. Uh, but the second truth I want you to write down about the resurrection is this. Jesus is alive, and this is personal. And this is personal. So the resurrection is a matter of history. We need to contend with its veracity. We need to weigh its claims, but we can't leave it in history because the resurrection is immensely personal. It has implications for all of us. So let's zoom in a little closer at this first resurrection appearance, and and, and I'll show you what I'm talking about. Start in verse 11. It says, But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and she wept. and, And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting there with the body of Jesus, where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Have you ever wept so hard, your eyes so filled with tears that it, it actually obscures your vision? This is Mary in this moment. The disciples have gone away. She thinks the body's been stolen. The tears fill her eyes. She can't even tell she's talking to angels. Verse 14, having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus again. Verse 15, Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Woman, who are, or whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Here's what, I want, here's what I want you to see right here. Jesus raised, raises from the grave. This is, this is the pivotal moment in all of redemptive history. And God's work in the world, this is, this is the culminating, this is the climactic moment. Okay? God is raised from the grave. And what's the very first thing he does? Does he call the press corps? Does he send out a, a press release? Does he write a book? Does he send out a mass email? Does he shoot Roman candles in the sky? No, what's he do? He comes to Mary, a woman. Do you remember Mary's story before she met Jesus? Let me remind you, Mary, before she met Jesus, was most likely a social outcast. She was tormented by demons. She had a reputation. She would have likely been estranged from her friends, her family, even her church community. She was, by all accounts, unpopular, unloved, and pushed aside by the world. But Jesus, in his ministry, what does he do? He moves toward Mary. He moves toward her, he heals her, he casts out the demons, he restores her value, he restores her dignity. She becomes one of his primary followers and disciples. She journeys with him and, and engages with him and his team for the better part of three years. And by the way, this teaches us something about Jesus, doesn't it? His priority. 
If you're here and you're you know, at church because it's what you're supposed to do on Easter and somehow in your mind is this view that Jesus is like the moral standard and he came to set that standard, ask you to live up to that standard and judges you if you don't reach that standard, you're just not reading your Bible. Jesus came and he moves towards the unlikely, the outcasts, the, those with the reputation. He spent his ministry hanging out with sex workers and drunkards. That's why he had a reputation. He's a drunkard and a crook because that's who he, so he moved toward. And here it is, he's risen from the grave, and his first thing, who's he going to appear to? Mary. It's amazing. And what's he do? He calls her by name, Mary. In the next verses, uh, he's going to tell Mary um, to go to his brothers. Who are his brothers? His disciples, the people that he's journeyed with for the better part of three years. He says, go to them and tell them. Do you see what, do you see what Jesus is showing us? He's shown us that he didn't just die and rise to pay off some sort of impersonal cosmic debt. He didn't just rise to display power, though it certainly displayed his power. He died and rose for people. His resurrection wasn't just historical, it was personal. His first priority on rising from the grave, he moves towards Mary. He moves towards his disciples. He rose for people, to love people, to save people, to move towards people. And I want you to know why this matters for you in particular. Yes, Jesus died and rose for Mary. Yes, Jesus died and rose for his disciples, his brothers, but he died and rose for you. This is personal for you. Don't take my word for it. Listen to Jesus. We have the Bible, John 11, verse 25. What does he say? He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Did you catch that? Whoever believes in me, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? So the resurrection is historical, yes, but it's also personal. And I want you to know it, it needs to intersect your life. It's for you. We need to contend not only with its truthfulness, but also its implications on our life. And so let me say, some of you have come to a place where you've come to understand the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus as a matter of history, but it hasn't become personal yet. I'll be honest, that was the first half of my life. I've always believed in God. He exists. Uh, you know, I grew up in a little Lutheran church in Waverly. I believed in Jesus, that he was the Son of God. I believed that he died and rose again, and that as a matter of historical fact, Jesus came to save sinners. There was never a point in my life I would have said that's not true. And yet, it had not become personal. I had not heard Jesus call my name like he called Mary's Gavin. But here's what happened. God opened up my heart. And he helped me to see that Jesus didn't just die for sins abstractly. He died for my sins. It was personal. He opened my heart to realize Jesus didn't just raise from the grave to validate his identity. He rose from the grave to change my identity, to bring me into the family of God, to make me a son of God. He revealed himself to me, to make himself known to me, and to give to me eternal life. And so let me say, if you're a Christian today, if you love Jesus and you hate sin and you've trusted him, rejoice. It's because Jesus first said your name. Even if it was in the quietness in your heart and you never heard an audible voice, I never heard an audible voice, and yet he said my name, Gavin, this is for you. Gavin, I have raised for you. Rejoice that God has said your name. Jesus has moved towards you, and you have interacted with the living and resurrected Jesus. And for others of you, would it be that Jesus is calling your name this morning? Even as you hear this story proclaimed, this resurrection, Easter miracle, is it possible that Jesus is making it personal for you today? Listen again to John 11. 
He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus ends this thing with a question, and I would just let him ask it of you. Do do you believe this? He says, I'm the resurrection. Whoever believes in me, do you believe this? So let me ask you, do you believe it? The resurrection is for you. Is he calling your name this morning? Does he want to gift to you eternal life? Now let me show you one last truth about the resurrection that comes out of our text. And uh, the last one is this. Write this down. Jesus is alive, and this is powerful. Okay? So it's, it's historical. It's personal. It's powerful. Look at the way our, our verses end in this section. I'll be honest. It ends kind of clunky and awkward. When I first read it, it's like, what is going on here? His, his interaction with Mary. But, but I think if, if we really look into what's happening, we'll see that Jesus is showing Mary the real gravity, the real, the real power behind his resurrection. Okay? So remember, Mary's just recognized Jesus. She's likely embraced him, wrapped her arms around him. And what does he say in verse 17? Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Now that's kind of weird. What, what's with this standoff Jesus? You know, have you ever thought that was weird for me to read the first time? Is, is, he, is, he, is he like me? Is he just Northern European and part German so he doesn't like touching people? You know? It's like Chris, he always puts his hands on me. I'm like, bro, don't, this is my new verse. I quote this verse. Do not cling to me. Dude, stop. We are a grown man. Stop doing, don't. And he quotes something about a brotherly kiss and it gets awkward. I'm stop, stop. Do not cling to me. I got a Bible verse, right? Well, no, he wasn't. It wasn't a personal space issue. Remember, who does he appear to after the, the first disciples? He then goes uh, to who? Doubting Thomas. What's he say? Touch me, right? This is not, he's got a, he wants to affirm he's got a bodily, physical, resurrected body. And so he's okay with, with touch. But what's he doing with Mary here? Don't cling to me. I think what's going on here is he's, he's correcting Mary softly and gentle, gently. So Think about Mary. For three years, the very centerpiece of her life in this whole Christian movement has been Jesus' physical, bodily presence with them. And so, you know, she's not fully cued in on everything that's happening. She's not even thinking resurrection yet. She's thinking resuscitation, right? Jesus was dead. Now he's undead. And so game on, right? Let's get the band back together. Here, Here we go. We're back to normal now. And I think what he's showing her is no, 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 no. It's not resuscitation like Lazarus. Remember Jesus rose Lazarus? What happened to Lazarus? He died later, you know? He just went from dead to undead and back to dead. You know, Jesus saying, no, no, no. This is the first of this kind. This is a resurrection. This body, this physical body is going to ascend up to heaven. He's showing her, hey, the, the whole scope of my presence and ministry with my people is about to get elevated to an entirely new level. We know from the rest of the Gospels in the New Testament, Jesus, what? He ascends up into heaven the day of Pentecost. He sends out his Holy Spirit. He inaugurates his church that permeates the entire world. We know that he's coming again bodily, physically, to rule and reign with righteousness and justice. We know that he's going to enter in the new heavens and the new earth and all of that. And we see that coming. And I think he's cueing her into that, but he doesn't take her all the way into it yet. Instead, let's just, let's just see what Jesus shows her right here in our text. Let's stay anchored to our text what, let's look at one of the first benefits of his resurrection that he's going to show to her and to his disciples. It says, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God 
and your God. You catch the familial language that Jesus uses? This is the first time that Jesus ever refers to his followers as his brothers by title. In Matthew, he mentions those who do the will of my father and my brothers. But this is the first time he said, my brothers, you are my brothers. Furthermore, what does he say? I'm going up to my father and what? And your father. To my God, the God who is, the the God of the Trinity, the God of the Old Testament, the God, the great I am, the Yahweh, the one who is always, I'm going up to my God and your God. He's communicating this inclusiveness into the adopted family of God. What he's saying is he has overcome the sin barrier that once separated them from their God. And now by faith, they are in what? The family of God. Brothers with Jesus, the God who is, has become their father. The eternal family of God. And I think what he's showing us is that for the follower of Jesus, God is not just some distant cosmic force. He's a good, good father. And you know what's especially fascinating to me? Mind-blowing is the timing of this announcement of their adoption into the family of God. If you'll remember, you know, the few days prior in the life of the disciples, this has not been their brightest hour, right? You remember when Jesus is in the high priest's court and they put him up on a bogus trial and some faulty charges and they have mockery of a trial and they falsely accuse him. What do the disciples do? They bust out of there. They bail. They abandon their rabbi, their teacher, their best friend. They're gone. Peter denies Jesus explicitly three times, one time to like a preteen little girl. What a coward, right? This is not their brightest hour. In this moment, they're feeling like a United Airlines security agent, right? They're like, probably shouldn't have done that. You know, they're just thinking this is not my best move, not my greatest moment. And yet, what does Jesus show them? Jesus moves into them in their worst moment, and he gives them his very best. I think what he's showing them and us that, listen, it it wasn't their obedience and fidelity and and courage that won them their adoption into God's family. It was Jesus's obedience and fidelity and courage that won them their adoption. I think Jesus shows them that in their worst moment, he's going to give them his very best gift because he wants to assure them that it comes by grace. Adoption to the family comes by grace. And so, friends, I want you to know that's what Jesus offers you today as well. This resurrection, it's historical, it's personal, but it's powerful. It's a one-way, God-directed, God-driven act of love for you. And it's not because you're the good kid, you're the religious kid, you're the moral kid, you're the kid with all the answers. It's precisely the opposite. It's because you don't deserve it, can't earn it, don't have it coming, and yet God would give it to you free of charge as a gift. The resurrection is powerful. It's inclusion in the family of God. It's adoption and eternal life. So let me ask you again, have you, faced, have you faced, placed your faith in Jesus? Has God become your father? I want to end by doing my very best to communicate just very plainly how, okay? How? It's historical, it's personal, it's powerful, but for me, Gav, you know, really hold my hand on this. Do I have it? How do I get it? I'm in. What do I do? Well, I'm going to let Jesus show you. How are we adopted in the family of God? How do we get eternal life? Look again at John 11, verse 25. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Now notice the words, I am the resurrection. What Jesus doesn't say is, I I point the way to the resurrection. 
I will show you how to get resurrected. I will teach you. I point to it. No, what's he say? He says, I'm it. I'm the resurrection. And so what he's saying is that the way to eternal life with God as your father, the way to heaven is not a principle. It's not a plan. It's not a program with seven steps that you pass through. What is it? It's a person. It's Jesus Christ. I am the way. I am the resurrection. So listen to me. You don't need a religion. You don't need a ritual. You don't need a new set of rules. You don't need a regulation. You need a relationship with the living person, Jesus Christ. He is the resurrection. And that happens when you transfer all of your trust off of yourself, off of your rule keeping, your morality, your intellect, what you can accomplish, how you've done it, how you haven't done this. You transfer all of your trust off of you and onto Jesus what he has accomplished, how he has saved you, how he is perfect, how he is righteous, how he earned the Father's approval. Listen to me. Jesus Christ came not as just a moral example or as a teacher, but as a substitute. He lived the perfectly righteous life on your behalf. Jesus died a brutal, horrific death in your place so that through his resurrection, he could give you eternal life. And he doesn't just want to get you to heaven. He wants to give you himself. Jesus is alive. And so let me ask you, would you trust him? Would you receive his forgiveness by faith? It's not a religion. It's not a regimen. It's not a program. It's the person, Jesus Christ. Would you trust him with your whole heart? That's faith. That's saving faith. And we're going to pray for that in just a moment. But can I also just remind the Christian in the room, our God is alive. Amen? Amen. Easter is this annual reminder that we don't worship a dead, archaic, religious figure, but a living God. He's here in the present. He's working in amazing ways. Just in our little church family, in four years, we've seen almost 500 people meet him and trust him and give their life to him and be baptized in his name. And we're one little church. The Bible says all over the world, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing. So Jesus is alive and he is resurrecting lives and he's resurrecting marriages and he's resurrecting stale faith and he's resurrecting trust and he's resurrecting hope. And listen, I don't know what situation you came into Easter in this year, but this is our annual reminder. You are not alone. God is alive. Jesus is alive. And if your trust is in him, he loves you. He's for you. He's with you. And his power is available to you. City Light, Jesus is alive. And this is historical and this is personal And this is powerful. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we rejoice because you are alive. Oh, God, who is like you? Who is like you? God, in this moment, would you just speak people's names, even in their heart, even as we pray right now? Just like you appeared to Mary and you called her name and it was like she was blind, but then she could see you're alive. Oh, God, is there someone sitting in one of these chairs even now? Would you speak their name and would would they see for the first time? This is not one religion among many. This is not one moral option. This is a living Jesus Christ. Oh God, would you save right now as people surrender their hearts to you and and would even pray along with me. Oh Jesus, I am a sinner. I have missed the mark. I am unworthy. And yet in my worst moment, I sense that you are coming my way to save me. Jesus, I believe that I cannot earn your favor. I cannot earn your love, but you give it to me as a gift. You lived the life I couldn't. You died the death I should have. And I now receive by faith and believing in you, Jesus Christ. Would you save me now? And now, Lord, for all of us, would you awaken sleepy hearts as we go out to Easter lunches and the rest of our week and the rest of our year? Would you help us to be authentically Christian, truly with integrity Christians, knowing we don't just read a dead book. We worship a living Savior. Oh, God, remind us that you are alive and you are powerful and you are with us. And now, God, as we sing and we rejoice, would you awaken our hearts to worship the living, resurrected Jesus. In his name we pray.
Amen.